health care. It was the biggest campaign issue in the elections of 2008, 2010, 2012, 2014, 2016, and 2018. Yet, during the campaign of 2020, despite it taking place in the middle of probably the largest health care crisis in over a century in America, the state of health care and health insurance systems in America barely seemed to warrant discussion from most major candidates. While Americans seem to overwhelmingly support the policy of Obamacare, many Democrats still believe it should have gone farther. And most Republicans, while they dare not attempt to repeal it again, are loath to allow any more changes to the current system. I'm Clay Aiken, and this week Politicon welcomes Jonathan Cohn, one of America's foremost authorities on health care, and the author of a new book, The Ten-Year War, Obamacare and the Unfinished Crusade for Universal Coverage. I'll ask him, why aren't Republicans and the corporate world on board yet with a public option? And is it wise for Democrats to attempt any moves towards universal coverage with such slim margins in Congress? And of course, how the heck are we going to get along? Um, so I got to admit, a little bit because we've been doing a few shows over the past few weeks that have been, um, well, in some ways, somewhat topical. Um, yeah. And we decided to talk about healthcare. And I asked the producer, um, who is really very, I mean, we're all happy you're here, but the producer, Dan, has just been pumped for weeks oh. about talking about your um, uh, your book and just the topic of healthcare. And I asked him today, very specifically, why now? And so I want to ask you the same thing. Why now? Why now healthcare? Yeah. I mean, I mean, we've got, we've just gone through, first of all, four years of what a lot of people would consider to be chaos. Whether you mm -hmm. like Trump or dislike Trump, it was chaos. I mean, everybody yep. kind of agreed that. And the healthcare discussion hasn't really been brought up that much in the public sphere since, you know, the failed attempt at overriding it, right? Yeah. Um, and then we've gone through impeachment trial number one, impeachment trial number two, Russian tampering, an election year that really didn't touch too much on on healthcare. Mm -hmm. um, at least not, it certainly wasn't a primary uh, race deciding issue. Mm -hmm. um, then of course we've had this pandemic, which obviously is healthcare related, but even with the pandemic, healthcare policy, has, has it been in the news at all or enough in your opinion? So I do think it has uh, in two ways that are very important uh, and, and both relevant to what I wrote about in my book. So I would say the first is, is actually related to the pandemic, um, which to me, the pandemic um, held up a mirror to our healthcare system. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in some ways, you could say that it was a it was a favorable reflection or a reflection that we should feel good about in the following sense, which is that if it wasn't for the Affordable Care Act, um, the number of people who would have been in serious trouble and losing their health insurance would have been significantly higher. Um, you know, we had a lot of people losing their jobs, and they got it. Be, you know, because of the Affordable Care Act, they were able to stay on insurance. A lot of them ended up in Medicaid. Um, at the same time, clearly. Uh, we have millions of people who don't have insurance, millions of people uh, 
who have insurance but have high deductibles, people are confused about their insurance companies. Um, that is not what you want in a pandemic, obviously. And, and, and furthermore, the more, and we see this every day as the news comes in about the pandemic and vaccines and who's doing well, who isn't, we, 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 we have such a dramatically unequal healthcare system um, and that treats people so differently. Um, and I, and I feel like the pandemic has brought that to life. And, and so, you know, we're talking about healthcare and actually in the rescue bill, in fact, you know, one of the things that was sort of tucked into, I mean, it's a very big bill and there was money for vaccinations and there was money for families to stay economically uh, whole while, you know, we get through this period. You know, there was a big boost to the Affordable Care Act to kind of fix some of the problems that were in there originally. So I think it's been in the, in the news for that reason. There's a second way, which is more indirect and actually very much a subject of my book, which is that the political story of the Affordable Care Act from the beginning when they started to talk about passing it in 2008 to 2018 when they tried to repeal it. And you know, my book is called The 10-Year War. It's that 10-year period. Um, I feel like that's where we learned about all the dysfunctions in American politics. That's where they all came out. And, and the way you see today Democrats acting very differently than they did 10 years ago, right? I mean, moving Hell quickly, so. acting on, you know, uh, the way the American Rescue Plan was passed, where, you know, there was a realization going in that there probably wasn't going to be a lot of Republican buy-in. And that spending a great deal of time negotiating and watering down the bill, um, you would not, you know, you would end up with something that was much worse and that would, the process would look worse. And these were all lessons we saw in the Affordable Care Act because they spent all that time negotiating and they ended up making all these compromises. And I think they ended up with a worse bill because of it. They learned that lesson. And I think today you see Democratic leaders, um, starting with President Joe Biden, saying, okay, we need to be bold and we need to move quickly. And we will be judged eventually on our results, not the process. If we, you know, and so the, the feeling is, um, you know, looking at COVID specifically, if we deliver on vaccines, if we, if, we, if we are able, we, the federal government, are able to preside over getting the country vaccinated and through this quickly, which right now, you know, they're doing a pretty good job, I think. In addition, if we are able to sort of prop up the country economically until we get past this, then people are going to see that we did a good job. This will, this will be good for the country and, 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 and we will be rewarded politically for that. And I think that's a lesson from the Affordable in Care the, Act. In where, the long run, right? Yeah. In the in long, long run, though, right? Is that that's not necessarily? I mean, do you think that that people rewarded Obamacare eight years or six years later? Uh, so six years later would have been. It was passed in 2010. Right. So not right. in 20, six years. 2016, later, yes. who voted? Yeah, but so six years later, America turned around and voted for the guy who said he was going to repeal it. He didn't yes. do it, but he said he was going to repeal it. Absolutely. So how long? So how long are we talking about needing to wait for people to see the 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 positive benefits of legislation of any kind? Really, yeah. I mean, uh, is that? Well, is that not a problem to you that six years later people still wanted it gone? Oh, it's a huge problem. And but I think that's the lesson they learned that they've now learned. They've learned that's not the way to do things. In other words, the the COVID rescue bill is not like that. I mean, we'll see the results from the COVID rescue bill in months, right? If it works, if it doesn't work, well, then that's another story. Then they'll but, lose the election. <laughs> right? They'll lose the election. So what you're saying? So your argument then, and I should Obamacare and the unfinished crusade for universal coverage. Um, I, I said it in the in the intro, but uh, and you didn't hear it. But <laughs> I want to make sure people know um, about your book. Just came out uh, two months ago, month and a half ago. About congratulations. Um, 
your your argument then is that Obamacare and didn't finish the job, Correct. and it should have. And you're you're comparing it to to this COVID bill because for the COVID bill, Democrats didn't attempt to negotiate. They just essentially rammed through what they wanted to ram through. Yeah. Um, do you think that there is a possibility for for Democrats to try to do that with healthcare right now? I mean, getting Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema to to support even the COVID relief package, they had to do a little bit of negotiating. Do you think it's going to get passed? Could it get passed right now? Or or have we gotten about as far as America is going to be willing to get for a while? So on healthcare specifically, like if you're asking me, let's say the Democrats decided in 2000, here in 2021 summer, they are going to put a major healthcare bill on the floor. Something that, you know, I, I, to be very clear, you know, I think the Affordable Care Act has moved us, was a huge step forward. I think it, I, I think it is the most important piece of legislation in 50 years for all of its flaws, which I talk about. I'm, you know, well, then why, I was going to say, well, then why are you complaining about it? I mean, so I'm not, I, I'm not definitely not complaining about. So, I mean, it's a funny, it's, it's, it's a bit of a complex message. I am actually not complaining about it. I mean, I think the law itself is, is I mean, I said it's the end. It's, it's flawed. It's got inadequacies. I think it's the best they could get in the political circumstances of 2010. Um, and I think it's done an enormous amount of good, even though I think there's so much more work to do. But, you know, I think that 2010, we didn't know what we know now about how the Republican Party had changed. I mean, that's sort of the story to me, is that the story, the, the sort of life cycle of the Affordable Care Act is when we saw the Republican Party become what it is today, this party of no, this party of extremism, this party that does not take governing seriously. I mean, as a proposition that wants to win elections, that wants to get its supporters outraged, but really doesn't have much of a place in a constructive conversation about solving problems. And, you know, if you go back in the time machine to 2009 and 2010, when Obama was first elected, and I talk about this in the book, obviously, but, you know, at the beginning of the administration, they had reason to think that they would get some buy-in from Republicans. I mean, the whole design of the thing was, and the whole, the whole plan was designed to get some Republican buy-in on the theory that they needed it. And they spent a lot of time negotiating with it. By the time they were done, it was pretty clear, okay, we're not going to get the Republicans. Um, but I don't, you know, I, I, I understand why they believed that at the beginning of 2009. Um, I think the difference now is everybody, you know, uh, the, the Biden administration, the Democratic leaders in Congress, they're not going to make that mistake again. They've learned their lesson in no small part because a lot of them were around it. I mean, you know, Nancy Pelosi, it's the same Nancy Pelosi who was the Speaker of the House back then, right? Um, Joe Biden was the Vice President. Um, Ron Klain was in, you know, advising. Uh, you go down the list, a lot of the people who are in the Biden White House were part of the Obama administration and back in 2009, 2010. And they remember, hey, we, we, you know, we tried to negotiate in good faith. We tried to meet these guys in the middle. We got nothing but rejection and we paid the political price for it. We're not going to do that again. So, I mean, I, 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 I've got a lot of questions about healthcare in general, but yeah. when you talk about that, it makes me think about just this overriding question about how value or, or how effective it is to allow the party that has a slim majority to push things through without any buy-in from the opposition. Um, and 
I think some might be able to argue, and you you certainly said they got the best that they could get at the time, um, or we got the best that we could get at the time of uh, in 2010. But there were still, you know, at least one or two Republicans who were willing to cross the aisle in 2010 and vote uh, for Obamacare. There are things probably, I think, that if they were pushed through by a slim majority, um, would not be easily repealed in two years or four years when another party took control. I think about um, we, we've got this voting rights issue, uh, gerrymandering reform. You know, that happens every 10 years. Even if the next part, even if they changed it now and outlawed gerrymandering before they redrew the lines for next year's uh, election, and then two years later Republicans came in, you'd still have ten years before anybody would be able to go and gerrymander lines again, arguably. But with something like healthcare, and I want to go back to the question that I asked you kind of a minute ago about the six-year, how the six-year mark from 2010 to 2016, six years later, Republicans were still running on repealing Obamacare, repealing Obamacare. And they said repeal and replace, but we know they weren't going to replace it with anything. So they wanted to get rid of it. Using your hypothetical, in 2021, the summer, Democrats place a universal health care package on the table in the House and the Senate, and it passes with a slim majority with Vice President Harris breaking the tie. And two years from now, Republicans win the House and Republicans win the Senate and they attempt to repeal it. How much damage does it do before people even realize they want it? Yeah, well, that's an interesting question. So, I mean, healthcare is hard, right? I mean, it's a very, very hard topic. And it's historically very hard to repeal something that's in place, but it has to be in place, right? I mean, I think, uh, right. you know, what- It has to be in place and it has to be, have public disapproval, right? Yeah. Which Obamacare does not have public disapproval now. It's something that people generally believe the Affordable Care Act should stay. Yes. But, but they've had it for 10 years now and that's right. why they want it. Right. They wanted to repeal Medicaid and Medicare back in the 60s also, now you couldn't touch it if you tried to. Right. Um, it's just one of those, these are issues that take a while for people to embrace. And so don't they need to be passed with enough of a majority that they can't quickly be repealed? Yeah, I mean, so, so there's, you know, there's a couple of things going on here. I, do I think, you know, I think when people have benefits that they're using, it's quite hard to repeal, regardless of how it came to exist, right? So, I mean, if you could pass, let's say Medicare for all, let's talk about Medicare for all. And just to be clear about definitions, because people toss these terms around and they mean different things. Some people will say, I believe in universal healthcare, therefore I'm voting for Medicare for all. Well, Medicare for all is a type of universal healthcare. There are different types of universal healthcare systems. You can have private insurance, you know, systems overseas are all kinds of different varieties. But they all kind of look similar. So let's just talk about it. You know, so let's say we had a universal health care bill that the summer of 2021 passed. Um, and by the way, not to skip ahead to my ending, I don't think that is going to happen. I don't think there's a remote chance that's going to happen. <laughs> but let's go with the hypothetical here. They're taking on a lot. Uh, yeah, yeah. So they could. So, Who knows? <laughs> so, um, uh, you know, and then Republicans win, let's say, when, you know, they, let's say they, they, uh, 
they win back Congress 2022, and then they get the White House in 2024. So they have the trifecta. You know, do they repeal it? And I think the answer to that depends entirely on whether that Medicare for all system is in place and people are getting coverage from it or not. Um, if people have insurance that they're using from the government at that point, taking that away is going to be awfully hard. I mean, that's just the way these things. Even shouldn't that a, have been the case in 2017? Then I mean, 2017, we they they were willing to take it away in 2017, but for one brave senator or three yeah. brave Republican senators together who who thumbs down. You're you're expecting rationality here, which is surprising. So uh, I am, although I would note a couple things. So let me say first of all that I always start this with the caveat you just mentioned, which is that. The Affordable Care Act barely passed, right? It doesn't take much imagination to imagine a scenario where it fails. I mean, if you go back to the history in 2009, 2010, similarly, repeal almost passed, right? You don't have to go, you know, you know, John McCain feels differently or whatever. Having said that, Republicans had a real fundamental problem. I mean, it, it, there was a reason they struggled to get a bill. And, and if you remember, the thing he's voted thumbs down on was not actually a repeal bill. It was a, quote, skinny repeal bill, and they were going to have to go negotiate in conference. And it's a bit of an open question whether they could have done anything meaningful after that. And, and the reason was um, they did not, they had not actually come up, as you said, they had no plan to replace it. And people wanted a replacement. And if you remember when Donald Trump ran for president, he did run on repeal. Best health care yes. in the world. But he also, yes, and, and he was this, you know, it's funny, I, I did the research, actually, you know, he had a book in, in, in around, I can, now I'm forgetting the year now, I think it was like 99 it came out, um, but it was one of his books that he, quote, wrote. He didn't write it, there was a ghostwriter. Right, and, I'm, he doesn't remember yeah. the year either because he didn't write it. <laughs> right. I doubt he remembers what's in it. But um, uh, the book, I interviewed the ghostwriter for the book, and I said, do you remember... Because the book says, you know, we should have a universal health care system. And he and this was a line of his, like all the way up to the 2016 campaign. He would say, he would You're say. You're also assuming Trump read that book. Yeah, yeah. Well, so that's, so that's my <laughs> question. Read it. But no, he would say, like, it was actually one of the things that he was strangely consistent about. And, and not in a detail level, but just at a sort of broad principle. He would say, I'm for universal health care. I know that's not popular with Republicans. So, like, he had clearly processed it enough in his head to know that this was something different. So I asked the ghostwriter. Uh, I said, what was up with that? And he said, I said, was that just a random thing? He's like, no, no, he actually seemed to, like, want to do that. Now, my, sen my, my sense of why is I think there's a psychology he had about I'm the guy who can sort of provide for my people. I mean... People like me who study universal health care, and if you look at the, the champions of it historically, so, you know, the Ted Kennedys of the world, the Harry Trumans, the, Bill, the Hillary Clintons, the Barack Obamas, the, you know, for them, this is all about sort of the fact that there are people suffering and, you know, we don't, we, we let people fall through the cracks and they go through these awful experiences. I mean, a lot of them have personal, you know, Barack Obama cared about health care partly because he watched his mother die of cancer having to worry about medical bills. I mean, that's part of his psychology. That's part of what got him into this. Um, you know, that, that's not true for Donald Trump, clearly, right? I mean, clearly that's not going on. I think for Donald Trump, it was like a pride thing. I can do this. I can be the big, you know, and he's thinking of his supporters. But he actually did, at some level, I think, think this was something he was going to do. I think he didn't, he, the man does not know anything about policy. But the point was, he sold it and perhaps even believed he was going to come through with something that was better healthcare. And, and Republicans had nothing that was better. So there was always this contradiction there. I think if he had run on a platform that said, I'm going to repeal the Affordable Care Act. And by the way, the thing that, that, that I put in its place 
10, 20 million people are going to lose health insurance. I don't think he gets elected. But don't you think there's an, I mean, when you talk about him running for it, and and I know him, <laughs> so it's been, you know, I, I, I know he doesn't necessarily have a plan. Yeah. He just talks and then right. tries to make it work. Um, <laughs> but when... When you're running, and one of the, th the reasons I think that it became so easy for Donald Trump to run um, is you need an enemy, right? Uh, you need something to run against. And running against Obamacare was more effective than running for the replacement. Just like running against Obamacare or against changes to our health care system, would be a lot easier today, even still for Republicans, than it would be for Democrats to say, we fought so hard for years and years from Hillary Clinton in the 90s all the way to when Barack Obama and Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid passed it in 2010 to get our health care. I mean, it's hard to run for something. And Obama ran a very, very, very unique campaign in 2008. It was, you know, lightning in a bottle, really, running for something and hope. How do Democrats run for finishing the job that they didn't finish in 2010? It's hard. That's a very good question. And in fact, I think we saw this in 2016 and in 2020 when you saw how to divide in the party um, between the sort of left wing of the party, people like Bernie Sanders, who are passionate, longstanding advocates for, for, for not just universal coverage, but for Medicare for all, right? For having the government just come in, wipe the board clean, get rid of every insurance plan in America, get rid of everything. I, you maybe leave Medicare in place, but you get rid of Medicaid and replace it all with this single new government program that's going to cover everybody and then you have this sort of a similar to what country by the way so the uh, so what country sweden, has the best I, example I, I think you're talking something close to canada or sweden or two or taiwan um where you walk in and it's free it's all free but but the free part so i want to i don't I mean get it's, it's all paid yeah. for taxes yeah, I, I don't, I don't want to get sidetracked on this but i do think it's important like the things that i think a lot of people associate with medicare for all are also from the standpoint of the patient also true in countries where they have private insurance playing a role. It, uh, we can talk about that later because I want to answer your question. That's uh, it's a really good question. But I, can we put a pen in it and come back to it because I, I really want to answer yes, it. Yes, I got it. Uh, I wrote it down. But, um, but uh, so you had the days that you had the Bernie Sanders wing and then like, let's say, you know, the Joe Biden wing, which was like, you know, that's that's a bridge too far. We can't do that. It's not politically possible. Practically speaking, you can't just rip the wiring out of the U.S. healthcare system in two or three years and move to this. So let's we have the Affordable Care Act, which which got us, which was like this big step forward towards universal coverage. So let's build on that, you know, make it work better and then, you know, create this sort of public option. Right. This sort of government run plan that will be voluntary for people. And, you know, maybe over time that grows and we end up with a single payer system. Maybe we don't. And. You know, I always like to say, I think those two sides have more in common than they realize sometimes. I mean, I think for most of the Democratic Party, they all want to get to universal coverage eventually. This is an argument about how you do it, not whether to do it. And I think there's a lot of common ground there. But it's a hard thing. It does, it inevitably becomes a kind of fight. And it can be a very divisive fight. And, you know, it, it, it was, you know, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders fought over this. And then Bernie Sanders fought with Joe Biden and, and all kinds of people tried to kind of get in the middle of it and got, you know, people, I don't know if you remember this, but I mean, Elizabeth Warren's campaign for the Democratic nomination was doing great 
and I certainly thought just as a student of policy, there was no candidate out there who, she, I mean, everybody says this about her. I don't think I'm, this is much of an opinion. She's a, she knows she policy. She knows her shit. Yeah, she does. She, yeah. Can we say that? She knows her shit. She really knows you her can shit. Say it. Um, <laughs> and she's also a get shit done kind of person. So, I mean, you know, and then she, she had a plan for that. And she had a plan for that. Unfortunately, her plan for Medicare <laughs> for all, which kind of tried to square the circle of, I'm for Medicare for all, but I'm not going to like make you do it right. It, it was just, it was like, it just, it was, it just, it really hurt her campaign a lot. Now, as it turned out, that particular issue of how to, how to solve that tension between Medicare for all and the more incremental path um, <clears throat> ended up um, getting stopped. It got paused because of the pandemic I mean, the pandemic pops up and that just sort of blows up, you know, we're, we're like, okay, we're not going to, we're not, we, we have other things to argue about now. And, 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 and we're, and we are all together. I also think, frankly, it has helped. I don't think this gets enough attention right now that Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden have a very good relationship. Um, and I, and I, I, you know, this is one of those things I've been reporting the book. Interestingly, I gained new appreciation for the importance of individuals um, in other words, you know, I think as a student of policy, I tend to think politics is all about these big grand forces. You know, there's demographic changes in the electorate and capitalism is doing this. And, you know, this is what's happening. And those are all really important, obviously, but it kind of matters who's in specific roles at specific times. So, you know, if Nancy Pelosi is not the Speaker of the House in 2009, 2010, I don't think health care reform passes. She's that good. She's just she's she's an incredibly gifted leader, whether or not you agree with her. And in the same token, I think the personal relationship between Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders has actually helped for now to kind of bring this particular rift uh, to heal that a little bit. But I expect we'll see it again opening up at some point. Isn't it ironic that it was that healthcare was talked about so much in the primary and then we got hit by the biggest healthcare crisis in anyone's lifetime and yet it did not carry over into the into the general election as much in the middle of a pandemic a election cycle that was run literally in quarantine did democrats miss an opportunity by not talking more about health care um, as a, a health care policy as opposed to the pandemic as opposed to some of the other things that were discussed did they miss did Joe Biden miss an opportunity to increase people's understanding of universal coverage or Medicare for all uh, when the whole country was in the middle of a medical crisis? You know, I actually don't think so. Even though I'm the kind of person who would love nothing more than to spend 24 seven talking about health care policy. <laughs> I'm like that. Um, yeah, I was like, you had an opportunity yeah. here, Jonathan. Take boy, it. I'm, boy, I'm, boy, am I popular at parties, let me tell you. Um, uh, uh, so, I mean, I'm happy to talk about it as, you know, as, as, you know, I'd be happy to cover it and write stories about it all day. Um, I don't think so for a few reasons. I mean, one of them is in some way, sometimes you just let the news talk for yourself. I mean, I think there's an inherent message when you're in a pandemic that healthcare is important and solidarity is important and that leaving people behind is bad. I mean, if nothing else, I mean, pandemic, it's not just that it sort of reminds you, that, oh, yeah, healthcare is important because we're dealing with a healthcare crisis. But I think at a, at a sort of deeper level, you sort of discover the interdependency we all have on each other and how much we depend on each other's, you know, w our security depends on the security of our neighbor, right? Because, at the, you know, one of the problems of the pandemic is I can be, you know, 
taking care of myself and trying to sort of not get infected. But if everyone around me is infected, at some point I got to go to the grocery store or whatever, it's going to make me vulnerable. We all have this common. And, and at the same time, sometimes people are going to get sick through no fault of their own, right? I mean, you're wearing a mask. And, and I feel like that's the, that's the premise, the philosophy of universal health care is that we all have this vulnerability. We're all better off together. But one of the biggest arguments that I think I have heard, at least on the right, about the, you know, the horrors of this universal health care idea or socialized medicine, which, again, we can talk about in a second. I know it's completely different, and I'll give you a chance to explain the difference um, for us in a minute. But um, the horrors of socialized medicine, government takeovers of health care, um, uh, universal health care coverage, and how it would ruin outcomes for, uh, for patients. But yet... And that, and that happens constantly. We hear that all the time, people waiting in line, socialized medicine, it's like the VA, you'll wait in line for a year, et cetera, or healthcare costs, healthcare may be free, but you don't get good health coverage when you, or healthcare when you don't have the free market competing. But if you look around the world, um, with the exception of a few outliers, like maybe Italy or the UK for a minute there, um, all the countries in Europe, um, certainly the countries in Asia, where universal health coverage is far more prevalent, not only had less deaths, but they had less deaths per case than the U.S. did by far. So a place like a place like France um, that had far lower caseloads in general by percentage of the population. But on top of that, COVID was less deadly for those who got it in France than it was for those who got it in America. That to me seems like an opportunity to make the argument, our healthcare isn't actually even saving people um, as much as the healthcare in France is. Like these folks are dying less from COVID than we, our people in America are. Did we miss the chance to make that argument or was the focus so much on, no, we don't want to blame it on the healthcare system. We want to blame it on Trump. So let's just make it all his fault and not blame the healthcare system right now. We'll fight that battle right. later. So I'm going to put on two different hats and answer two different ways. I'm going to put on my hat as an intellectual who cares about these things. And, and I'm going to say, I agree hundred sure. percent with you. Um, and you know, to me, if I was going to make an advertisement for single payer Medicare for all, I would take a camera crew to Taiwan. <laughs> Taiwan has a single payer system that looks pretty much like what you'd want to do with Medicare for all. It works really well in Taiwan. I've been there. I've, I've written about it. It's a great system. I mean, it's got its problems. Every system does, but it, it's really good. And of course, they're like a, a, a one of the best countries at, at dealing with COVID. Now, they have some natural advantages. It does actually help to be an island, for one thing, where you really can control and influx and, and, and things like that. But still, you you know, you could do that. And sure, I mean, you can make that case. And I'd even go beyond that. There's actually, this isn't so much a COVID thing. There's a really important paper. It got lost. I hope it gets some new attention. Um, actually, the lead one of the lead authors was Zeke Emanuel, who actually served in the Obama administration, where they looked specific. You know, one of the, one of the arguments you hear in this country a lot, and it's subtle, but it's, I think what a lot of people think is that, yeah, our healthcare system's kind of crappy and lots of people get left behind. But if you're good, if you're lucky, right, if you're in that top percent, you have good health insurance, you can get into Sloan Kettering, you know, if you have cancer or whatever. I, I live in Ann Arbor, Michigan. You can get to the University of Michigan Health System, one of the best hospitals in the country. Then clearly you're better off here than you would be in Germany or, you know, Sweden or whatever. And this paper looked at that question specifically and actually found that no, 
you're not. I mean, some play, you know, there, there, there's some particular, you can find particular diseases where, yes, you know, by far you're better off being in the United States. But it's a, uh, it's a, uh, it's a, you know, overall, there really just is not evidence uh, that even the best American care is noticeably better than overseas. So, you know, I would absolutely make that argument as an intellectual. If I, I am not a political strategist. If I were wearing my political strategist hat, I'm guessing the meeting goes like this. No matter what, getting into a debate of healthcare is complicated. It's hard. It's, you know, polarizing. We have COVID. We have Trump. Just stick to the damn message. And, you know, I assume that was the calculus. And, you know, you got to win the election. It worked. So. <laughs> It right. works. So, I mean, I, I think you're probably right, and it's easier to do it that way. And you're right. It is incredibly complicated. So let's try to let you talk us through all some of the different variations. So one from the lowest being from the lowest being um, not just not necessarily sticking with the status quo, but what Joe Biden suggested in his campaign, which was to add a voluntary public option and allowing people to work themselves into, uh, you know, choose to be a part of the, the public option all the way to the, the top, maybe, I guess, being essentially having everyone go to government employed doctors, yeah. which would be socialized medicine. So what are all right. the things in between that people are having to choose right. between? So, yeah, let's think of this as like a spectrum of possibilities. Uh, you know, let's sort of, you know, so the, the, the spectrum, let's start with what you suggested being the Joe Biden strategy that he outlined in the campaign, which is going to be the least ambitious one that we're going to talk about. But just to keep, put some, get some perspective, if you weren't debating the other options, you'd say, wow, this was incredibly ambitious in, in terms of historically by American standards. It was a lot. Um, so the first thing, you know, it has a couple of components. I don't want to go into them all because people get bored. But, you know, the general gist is to say um, to people who are, you know, we have Obamacare, right, has these exchanges where you can buy coverage, right? You know, if you, and, and this is for people who don't have employer coverage, right? So I'm a, I'm a small business owner. I have two part-time jobs. I, I'm in a low-wage job that doesn't offer health insurance. So the, these exchanges are out there. You know, healthcare.gov is where you go in most states. And you can buy coverage and you can get a subsidy, right? Like a discount from the federal government. So it's affordable. And the big problem was, and this is because of the way the ACA was run and the political constraints at the time, it's very expensive a lot of that. Once, once you get up into the middle class, you don't get much assistance, it's too expensive. So the first thing you do is you make it more generous so that even middle class people buying the insurance, it's more affordable. Um, and they've actually already done that for temporarily. The, the, the COVID rescue bill does that for two years. Now the, the, the question is, can they then make it permanent? But that's, so that's sort of step one. Step two is to say, you know, I was just explaining, this is only for people who don't have employer insurance. There's a lot of people who have employer insurance that is expensive for them or they don't like it for some reason or it doesn't work for them. So part of what he wants to say is and say, well, once I've done this and made this more generous, I want to let anybody, even if you have an, even if you work for a company that offers coverage and they're whatever, you can come and do this instead if you prefer. And then by the way, in addition to the options that are already there, we're going to create a public option, a government-run plan that, you know, think of it like a little baby Medicare for all system, you know, a little lowercase m, right? And it'll be, med or Medicare for people who want it, basically. And people can start to enroll in that. 
Sherrod Brown called it Medicare, right? Right. Medicare for so now that is the sort of Biden plan. There are versions of that in Congress. There's a bill I've written a lot about that I think is really interesting from Rosa DeLauro and Jan Schakowsky, who are two House of Democrats, longtime advocates for universal coverage, uh, very liberal, which is a very kind of souped up version of that, where it's really Medicare for anybody who wants it. Um, And it creates this giant public plan and anybody can get into it. And over time, you can easily imagine a version of that that becomes Medicare for all kind of by just if If it's it's good. good, And if it's not, well, all right, then, you know, nothing lost. Right Um, now, I'm simplifying. Both of those plans have huge trade offs. They're complex. Um, One of the arguments that Bernie Sanders makes for Medicare for all is that one of the mistakes of the Affordable Care Act, which, by the way, he voted for and defended. So just to be clear, he's not a critic of the he 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 deserves credit for having voted for it and and been an incredibly effective advocate for it when it was under assault. So just to be clear about that. But, you know, he's like you like Bernie. uh, We got it. I I, I can (laughs) criticize Bernie plenty. Believe me, I've been very. In fact, you talk to Bernie's people, they'll tell you they didn't like a lot of the things I wrote about his Medicare for all plan. But, um, you know, one of the Bernie (laughs) uh, uh, arguments is that Medicare for all is just simpler. Right. It's just, you know, no, no, no more. This like you have this plan. You're eligible for that one. You got to calculate your tax. No, just everyone gets the Medicare for all plan. And it's you don't have to worry about where your insurance is for anymore. And there's like no. But it makes my taxes go up. Well, everything gets paid for. So you do pay for it in taxes. And that's where it gets hard. You know, and this is the constant debate that I think people of good faith are having and people of good faith can disagree about, which is. The, the sort of selling point of Medicare for all, or one of the big selling points, is that not only is it simpler, but you're going to save money. Now, you're going to have to, you, healthcare is not free. You're still going to pay for it through your taxes. But the general theory is, yes, you'll have to pay for it through your taxes. But number one, your taxes will be scaled to your income in a way that the current system is not. And second of all, and this is the part about Medicare for all that never gets really talked about a lot, the government is now setting prices and budgets for the healthcare system, right? Which is common. It's all the systems, even the no matter every universal coverage system abroad. But Medicare is not allowed to negotiate. Well, under Medicare, prices. For all it would. <laughs> that's the point. I mean, that you're giving. Okay. Medi- okay. So, so your design right. for Medicare well, for all would Bernie's be allowed too. to do and, it. And, but currently, yeah, right. I mean, not. this is but this is what right. Bernie is calling for, and, and and he doesn't just want to do it for drugs. He's going to tell the hospitals what they can get paid. He's going to tell the doctors what they can get paid. Now, I am. Sounds like government control well, to me. Government is controlling prices and, and, and budgets. Now, this is again. This is exactly what happens in every country abroad, um, even the ones that have cis- universal coverage systems that are private insurance. The government is setting a budget, and I could give you a very long lecture of evidence for why I think that is both possible and, frankly, the smart thing to do in this country. There's all kinds of evidence we're overpaying for hospital care, we pay too much for drugs, and etc. So I can show you that on paper. I can also then tell you here are the reasons why that's not going to work. Um, first of all, even if you believe that argument, you have to somehow get from the current financing system to that financing system. You got to tell the hospital, you got to, so if we're going to talk about hospitals for a second, you're going to tell the hospitals, okay, you're going to have to make do with less money. And on paper, that's fine, but it's actually hard for them because, you know, if anyone's ever run an institution, it's hard to re-engineer your institution sometimes. So... Let me let me ask then, based just to compare these two, Bernie's Medicare yep. for all, we'll call it, um, and Joe Biden's. Is it fair to say Bernie's Medicare for all and Joe Biden's Medicare for anyone who wants it? Yeah, um, or you know, 
uh, or, or we'll call it Rosa Delario's yeah, yeah. if you want to. But the, but the two differences, um, one being let's just do away with everything and everyone will get Medicare for all. And it'll be, the, as Trump would call it, the greatest health care you've ever had ever. in your life. Um, or Medicare for anyone who wants it, which would mean any of us would be allowed to buy into it, to choose to go with it, etc. Isn't there just an American value system for, or maybe it's the, maybe it's the wild west frontier system <laughs> of mentality that some people still have of, I don't like anything that I'm forced to take. Um, and therefore, if I am forced to take Medicare for all, I'm going to hate it, even if it is great. Versus if you just open it up to me and let me choose, then I'll choose, I might choose it when I see that you know the the government in this in this Medicare for all change. I'm assuming Medicare is also going to be allowed. Medicare for anyone who wants it is also going to be allowed to negotiate these prices, just like a health insurance company would. I guess what I'm saying is, it sounds to me like you're almost making an argument for the Biden system because it could become the Bernie system eventually, if people slowly these people who six years later hated it hated Obamacare, but 10 years later actually would hate to see it gone. These folk, these same people who in the 1960s thought Medicaid and Medicare were the most destructive things ever and were going to ruin the healthcare system. And, you know, 40 years, 50 years later, now you couldn't touch their Medicare or Medicaid if you, you know, if you had to. Wouldn't it be that, doesn't that make the argument that it is the smarter path to allow people to choose it if they want it? And then prove that i mean allow the government to participate in the free market in as it were and prove that they are the better option for people to take than to force it down yeah well you just articulated the basic political argument for that approach i mean that is exactly the argument and you know that is that is very much the theory which is that forcing people to give up their you know insurance and go into this medicare for all system even if most people feel like it's a better deal, the people, there's going to be a core of people who really hate it or will resent it. And, uh, you know, among the many rules in politics, as you know, is that the people who are unhappy about a change are three times louder than the people who approve of a change, right? That's always how it is. And they get more, yeah, squeaky, squeaky wheels. wheels. And, and by the way, this is like a recurring theme in the history of healthcare in this country. Um, I mean, it, it, this is, you know, this, this is, the reason that, like, it, it, it's one of the reasons Harry Truman is not able to do healthcare. It was the big, big, big takeaway from Bill Clinton's time in the White House. I mean, Bill Clinton tried to do a healthcare plan, came reasonably close to doing a universal coverage plan that, frankly, was more ambitious and, on paper, a lot better than Obamacare. But what's but they ran into big trouble because people felt like they were being forced into something. And in fact, the Affordable Care Act, if you want to know the single like defining motivation of why it looks like it did was that when Democrats, after the Clinton plan failed, they're like, well, how do we do this right? And so we don't keep feeling like, okay, rule number one, don't screw around with people who already have employer coverage because they'll get upset. Let them keep it there. But you know what? I have to, th I mean, I just have to think to myself, if I were a Republican and I wanted to be the supporters of job creators and the supporters of business, wouldn't it make sense to make the argument, hey, companies, hey, business owners, hey, corporations, we're going to save you millions of dollars that you would be paying 
for your employees' health insurance, and we're going to take it on ourselves. I mean, doesn't that, I mean, to me, that just makes a, <laughs> it makes a strong argument to the business support, the business community, the commerce, you know, chambers of commerce, that universal health care would save me so much in in payroll expenses because I wouldn't have to be paying my for my employees health care insurance but then folks turn around and think well, but I'm gonna have to pay for it in taxes so how much more efficiently could the government really run the healthcare industry than health insurance are administrative costs for health insurance companies higher than what they would be for yeah, the government so this is such a good question and such a like the answer is so much tells five layers too sorry and 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 i love these <laughs> and 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 so much tells and it's like it's 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 the story of healthcare why it's so complex in one question so the sort of your, your hunch here that like wouldn't business be better off if the government just took healthcare off their hands, like so the employers didn't have to worry about it? And as a health policy student, I am here to tell you the answer is yes, with a capital Y and an exclamation point. And 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 well, you know, you would, you would a simpler system it has less administrative uh, waste. The government can do a more effective job of holding down. You know, if the government's setting prices, that's going to hold price down. And, and if you want proof, talk to the company, talk to CEOs about how their plans. You know, what, talk, talk to the German CEOs, talk to the French CEOs. They don't want to give that up. They, they, they like the system. It works very well. It works well for their employees. It works well for them. They're happy with it. The CEOs are happy with it. They got to save millions So you're thinking, year. okay, so why? And, and I'll tell you, I used to, you know, I've been writing about healthcare now since the late 1990s. And like, I remember going through this period or early, like I kept wanting to write stories about like businesses. What are you doing? You know, why don't you sort of see the wisdom? And you would talk to CEOs and you could find CEOs who would say that. I mean, there are, there are CEOs out there and there are companies. Um, and, and certainly I think in general, corporate America, there's an element of it that is more friendly to having more government involvement in healthcare than before, simply because they need, they've they come to the realization they need some help. They can't do this on their own. I live in Michigan, so this has been a big story perennially for the auto industry. You know, if, you know, if you remember when they, especially in 2009, when Obama was first elected, they need help. And, need and, and the help. healthcare cost for their retirees was a huge part of that. And then there was some, you know, huge amount of the money that they were paying uh, you know, why was it like, you know, GM car more expensive than a Toyota? Like a huge chunk of that was the health benefits for the GM retirees. So, um, you would think this is a no brainer. And then you talk to the CEOs and you discover they do not see it that way. And there's a couple of arguments. Um, you know, one of them is, I'll, I'll go from the most, well, so one of them is, uh, they like control. They want to have control of it, both in the sense that philosophically, they don't trust the government to do this well, and they feel like they can control it better as an American thing. But the, 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 the CEO of GM thinks they, he can control it better. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure that the CEO of Kaiser Permanente yeah. thinks they can do it better, but I'm talking you know, about the guy who owns some of the these hardware CEOs, store down I mean, the I don't know how much time you, I'm sure you've spent a lot of time around CEOs. I've, spent a lot of time, I've never met a CEO that lacks ego or confidence. I think it's sort of a job requirement. Okay, they fair, all feel like, fair. yeah, I mean, don't you feel Argument like, I mean, am I right? Like they all feel like they can solve all the world's problems. Yeah. And, you know, look, there's some very smart CEOs out there. I think sometimes they get a little out of their lane, but okay. Um, so there's that, but there's also, there's like, it's leverage with your employees, right? It, it, it's a way, you know, benefits are a way to kind of 
you can manipulate them in ways that you know keep the workers you want to work. I mean, th th there's a, there's a leverage over your workforce angle there that they like. Um, there's also you know CEOs. I think in this country, again, this is more of an American thing relative to European or East Asian countries. Um, CEOs here are very anti-government and are very you know they don't want taxes, they don't want regulation. And they tend to see healthcare in the context of that, both in the sense that their instinct is not to trust the government, but also they worry about opening that door. Okay, maybe the government could do healthcare for me, but if I start letting the government, if I say it's okay for the government to come in and do my healthcare, now it's harder for me to argue, don't tell me how I can pollute, or don't tell me how, or you know, don't know how to run my factories, or you know, don't tell me how to treat my workers. And so, so there's that. And also there's a culture there. And I, I you know, like, but they let the government they let the government require them to provide the health insurance in the first uh, place, right? I mean, who set that rule up? Who set that standard up that all of a sudden we would decide that employees employers are responsible for health care coverage? You as an author, you at your your wife's university as a institution that employs people, you are now responsible for the health care of your employees. That, like, okay, so that, that now, now, now we're doing the, you know, you know how you have the origin stories in the Marvel universe? Like, it's the origin story for whatever time. Now you're into the origin story of American health insurance. We well, got to go back to the 1920s, actually. And um, it's like first time healthcare is ever expensive in the United States because first time medicine can actually do things, right? Because, you know, you go early 20th century, like, doctors aren't really curing people, right? They don't know what they're doing or whatever. But, you know, starting 20th century, medicine advances. Now it's, but now people can't afford to go to the doctors. And uh, this happens everywhere else. Everywhere else in the world creates a universal healthcare system uh, because they realize that the only way to, the, the, the math of paying for medical bills, the only way to make it work is to get a group of people together, of mostly healthy people who are subsidizing the sick, right? That's the basic fact of all insurance. And, you know, the theory on, you know, on health insurance is if you're part of a group, it's worth it because you might not be sick today, but you, be, you could be sick tomorrow. It's, it's we all pay into the same thing. So, the thing is, most of the countries say that, and I say, oh, all right, we'll have the government just organize everyone into one giant insurance program. We don't do that um, for a variety of reasons, including Franklin Roosevelt thought about it. With, they were going to make it part of the Social Security Act, and they realized that politically, even back then, like it was going to be hard because like the doctors would, would, would treat it as like a interference with their autonomy and so on. But you had this problem that had to be fixed. So... Um, well, how are you going to make this work? Because you had to find some way to get random groups of people in, in a pool to make insurance work. And it's actually the hospitals who first thought of this because they were in trouble because they had all these patients who couldn't pay their bills. So um, there's actually a story here. The very first insurance plan in America, it's in Dallas, Texas, and at Baylor Hospital. Um, the CEO, uh, well, I don't think the CEO is the head administrator, um, is the former superintendent of the Dallas schools. And he comes up with the idea of going to the school system and saying to the teachers, who are a nice big group of people, if I can get most of you to buy into an insurance plan, I think it was 50 cents a month, we'll give you 14 days of, of healthcare every year. And they get people to sign up. And like the Christmas Day, 1929, a teacher slips on the ice. She breaks her ankle. She goes to pay her bill. They're like, no, you're covered by the hospital. She's the first person ever taken care of an in insurance in America. But that model took off because it worked mathematically, financially. And like, oh, companies, employers, you know, and this started with Dallas school teachers, which is a public but, you know, the, the same thing that works for the Dallas teachers will work for General Motors. It'll work for a factory. And then there's a series of decisions that happen. Um, 
they seem random now, uh, but one of them is in World War II, there were wage and price controls. Uh, you couldn't, you know, just offer wages to lure workers because there was a labor shortage because of the war, but they let companies offer fringe benefits like healthcare. And ah, uh, so they did it to them. So the government, yeah, kind of forced and, and their then hands you know, labor unions point, got the right? right to bargain for it. So they and 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 this, but there, this is how this is why now changing American healthcare is so hard is that we've been we've built this system over the course of a century, and everyone's invested in it. So even if they're not happy with it. You got to convince each one of these people that what they're moving to, and by people, I don't mean, I mean the people who have insurance, the companies that are providing it, the hospitals that are getting paid by it, the benefit administrator. I mean, everybody's a constituency. If you think about a big company, there's probably a giant human resources department, right? Which is benefit managers, who, by the way, a lot of them are very good and smart and like incredibly, you know, they've spent years and years learning about this for very understandable reasons. And they're probably not, they're no. probably not jackasses either. They're probably good good um, good yes. human beings who yes. care about others but they are working for well, a right. profit and you know and so you know you're going to move still. these people i mean it's just at the end of the day any serious healthcare reform is going to be you know you're moving money the easiest way to think of this is you're moving money around to make it more to, to in a direction that you think is more humane and more efficient and that but inevitably you're going if you're putting money somewhere where it's not going you're taking money from somewhere where it is now and wherever that money is, it belongs to someone. That person or that company is not going to be excited about giving it up. And it could be a big, you know, amoral, who cares that I'm taking money away from the CEO of Pfizer, or it could be somebody, you know, who's actually like a hospital janitor. I mean, you know, it's complex. Well, I'm, I'm with you on that. And I understand, I mean, I'm in, I'm in RTP, so surrounded by pharmaceutical companies, it would be... It, deadly for me to say, you know, I don't necessarily think that they are the most responsible uh, stewards of the uh, of the healthcare economy. But I'm talking about and I don't want to keep dwelling on this. I'm not talking about taking I'm not talking about the the damage, so to speak, that would be done to Glaxo, uh, Smith Klein, or Pfizer or Moderna. If we t I'm talking about the benefits to Ford and 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 Google and all these other companies who would no longer have to have that cost put on them if they didn't have to if if they had their employees choose to go to I mean if I if I was the CEO of Apple and I had an opportunity to tell my employees you know tell you what if you will go with a public option will give you 50% of what we save on it, you know, um, more in your salary, I feel like that would be just as valuable to them, um, and save Apple millions of dollars, so, right? In principle, I agree, you know, in principle, I, I, and, and to lay my cards on the table, I am like, you know, and I say this in the book, like, I think if we could get to a Medicare for all system, I think it'd be great. I think it'd be an improvement. I think I'm more broadly than that, I, I've, this is now my second book. My first book was basically the case for universal healthcare, why it's, it, we should do it in our own self-interest, why I think it's a moral principle. So that's just, just to lay my cards on the table, that's where I'm coming from on this debate. And yes, you've probably figured that out I think we, I think we figured okay. that already. Um, all right, you know, um. <laughs> I was trying to make sure. And, you know, in principle, yes, it, for, it makes sense for the business, but this is why it's so complex and, and it just is confounding. And the Apple example is a good one. Now, I don't know the specifics of Apple, but I'm gonna guess. Apple's, uh, a, a, you know, yeah, or Google, well, one, of those, you know, one of the big silicon. 
I'm going to guess that the workforce at Apple or Google or Facebook or any of those big tech companies is pretty young, right? I mean, this is who works there, right? Right. Right. They're not worried about healthcare. healthcare. They probably don't use a lot of healthcare. I mean, there's going to, in a large company, you're going to have some people who have various conditions, obviously. Some people are going to have accidents. You know, you have the normal course of things, you know, pregnancies, whatever. But in general, on average, that is a pretty healthy young workforce but papa john's is not necessarily um and he was anti yeah. <laughs> obamacare and he was anti universal health care and i have to think to myself god the amount that you could have yeah. saved on that i'm dwelling on it no um, no way more than i should on the on that so, particular i mean so look, piece i don't know it. first of all my first question is i don't know much about papa john's other than i don't like their pizza as much i probably shouldn't get myself in trouble here i don't like their pizza as much as well you know i used to live in boston used to, I, like papa saying? Gino's. Annoy me. I like papa gino's a lot i'm not a papa john's fan <laughs> Okay, no, we good, don't have any good. pizza sorry, sponsors like, on this show, you so you're free to. <laughs> but, um, uh, uh, you know, so I don't even know if, like, does, does Papa John's pay its, gives benefits to its drivers? And it's, it's a... Well, I mean, that was, I, I, I chose them specifically because their CEO yeah. was one of the, and has been one of the most yeah. outspoken opponents, uh, outspoken proponents yeah. of Trump, outspoken opponents of, of health care uh, legislation. And, yeah. and but I think so that gets I, that's to what I was I use talking about specifically before, though, I, like like I a lot of CEOs, this is just, this is, this is not about like strictly speaking a rational assessment, you know, or a hard, or a hard numbers assessment. A lot of this is, is just, you know, there's, as with any group of people, I think there's a number of CEOs who are just, I don't mean this word in the religious sense, but they're evangelical about this. I mean, they're just, you know, they hate the government. Um, they want the government out of their lives. And you, I could talk them blue in the face and take them over to Germany and see how great the universal coverage system here is and how every CEO there thinks it's, you know, it's wonderful. And, you know, Germany is a very dynamic economy, right? We're not talking about a place that's like a backwater. Um, that doesn't matter because this isn't about the evidence for them. I mean, for the CEO of Papa John's, this is about hating, you know, hating the government. And it's, it's just a piece of that. I want to get on to some of the questions that we have from folks, from listeners. Um, if you are listening, you can send your questions to next week's guest um, at podcasts at politicon.com, or you can send them to us on Twitter or Instagram at politicon. Um, and these were some that were sent in last this past week uh, for those folks who knew that you were going to be a guest this week. Kristen from Fort Lauderdale, Florida asks, should ethnicity factor into modern health care and vaccine So first, a shout out to Fort Lauderdale. It's where I grew up. Uh, <laughs> um, should ethnicity, you know, it's interesting because this is coming up right now. You know, the Biden administration has made a really high priority of equity. And you hear and read a lot about how a lot of their vaccine efforts really focus on underserved communities, which overlaps a lot with communities of color. And, you know, it's not an accident that the big stadium mass vaccination sites that they're setting up, for example, a lot of them are in low income, heavily minority communities. Um, They just announced a big investment. They're going to send a bunch of uh, vaccines to community clinics, which are serve low-income populations. You know, th- those are the places around the country. There's more than a thousand of them. I forget the exact number, um, uh, but they serve like 30 million low-income Americans a year. Don't have insurance. Your insurance doesn't pay for it. You have Medicaid, whatever. You're welcome there. They'll d- give you primary care. They do great work, by the way. And and there's a lot of effort in that. And I saw when they made the announcement 
on Twitter, actually, a number of people were like, you know, does this mean that sort of if you're not a minority or not low income, you don't deserve the same attention? And so the two things, the two answers to that are number one, first of all, it's, it's about income as much as ethnicity or race. A lot of the people who will benefit from this are actually white. A lot of you know rural communities, uh, low-income rural communities, are really going to benefit from this. But number two, I mean, this is all a response to the fact that right now uh, communities of color are not getting vaccines. They're, they're, the vaccination rates are significantly lower. I mean, there's no question about it. The data is quite unambiguous about this. So the Biden administration... Uh, no, not by, by choice. choice. Well, mean. so, I mean, th- there's a little bit of hesitancy. I mean, so let me say that as with everything else in the pandemic, uh, information in real time, it's, it's hard to know for, it's hard to be, say anything with 100% certainty. So like, why, you know, so why is the vaccination rate for, say, African Americans so much lower than it is for white Americans? Initially, the thought was, oh, that's a hesitancy thing, you know, and it's for all kinds of reasons, including the legacy of Tuskegee and sort of not distrust of the, of the medical system. That's probably a factor, but it looks like there are other factors that are bigger that are sort of just the usual inequities of the American healthcare system. I mean, you know, up to this point, if you wanted to get a vaccine, you had to be able to get online and you had to really know your way around the internet and you had to be able to spend a lot of time, you know, refresh, refresh, refresh. Are there arguments? Are there not arguments, though, that that has that that those issues yes. run parallel to income also Absolutely. just as much Absolutely. as they do to ethnicity? Yeah. People in, you know, poor people in the middle of rural country areas, regardless of race, are going to have less access Absolutely. to their vaccine. So, I mean, one of the right? things the Biden administration is doing is is targeting those areas where that's a problem. A lot of them are places, communities of color um, and. You know, and a lot of them are rural. I mean, one of the big investments they're just making right now is in rural communities, you know, rural community centers to kind of reach those areas. Um, I actually thought, you know, it was really interesting. One of the innovations they came up with was they said, hey, I mean, basically the Biden administration's approach is to say, who's not getting vaccines? Our job as the federal government is to plug those holes because the states are sort of running their plans and there's gaps. We're going to come into the federal government. We're going to fill those gaps so there's equal, you know, so that feels more equal. And, you know, um, one of the things they came up with, and I just thought this was very interesting as someone who studies health policy. I was like, oh, yeah, what a good idea. They figured out that dialysis patients on the whole tend to be overlap a lot with low-income communities. There's a disproportionate number of low-income, a disproportionate number of communities of color. People are getting dialysis. And so... They have this big mm-hmm. partnership now where they're having vaccines through dialysis clinics. And, and you know, and, and you figure it. There you go. All, the t- all you got to right. do is use but, you your know, brain. I mean, that was for a really good second, idea. Right? Among other things, I mean, you're already there three times a week, usually. <laughs> and, you know, you got a medical professional right there who's qualified to give the shot. So, I mean, it's, it's just it's such an easy way to do it. And, and you know, and, and that's the kind of thing they're doing. I, 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 you know, I don't see them saying that, you know, white people or people of, you know, other certain ethnicities don't deserve shots. This is all about rectifying, you know, fixing, you know, filling the gaps that exist, you know, making up for the sort of inequality that's already in the system. Okay. Lucas from Chicago asks, is it possible to have affordable health care when our doctors and dentists graduate? Oh, wow. What a good question. So if you study American health care systems, compared to the rest of the world. Why do we spend so much more? We're not, it's not, it's not because we're getting better healthcare. That's pretty clear. So why do, why is American healthcare so expensive? And there's a, there's a saying by a very famous economist, Uwe Reinhardt, 
Uh, he wrote a paper with a couple other people, and the title was, It's the Prices, Stupid. The price that we pay for everything is just much higher. Now, that includes the price for drugs and the medical devices and the hospital beds. It includes the price for doctor services. So if you really want to sort of, you know, if you're thinking about how do we get our system in line, you know, or bring it cost structures closer to what you see in those other countries, you know, you'd want to pay people less. But then you run smack into the problem that I forget, you know, what was the, his name or her name, the, the person who just wrote a, Lucas's uh, uh, Lucas. question, which is a very good one, which is, all right, you're going to tell, go to the doctors and tell them you were going to pay you less. Wait a minute. I mean, I, I'll say my college roommate, physician, uh, uh, you know, borrowed money, uh, four years of college, four years of medical school, several years of residency, working unbelievably long hours, well into his 20s before he's ever like making anything, you know, beyond a sort of, you know, very modest salary. And you know, I mean, I have, you know, people like that, they have a lot of debt to pay off now, right? And and so, I mean, one of the things you learn, though, is that those other countries, they do pay their doctors less, but they also don't make them take out such big loans in order to become doctors. So I think, you know, in a rat, and, and as good. So it sounds like you can't really fix the healthcare problem unless you also fix the amount of debt these doctors I mean, that, are getting into, right? I mean, who's going to want to go to medical school and and graduate with $200,000 worth of college debt if they know that for the rest exactly. of their life they're I mean, going to I think, to you know, to me, loan, I've always right? thought in terms of dealing with a medical profession, a reasonable sort of package, a package deal here that ought to be able to, somebody, a clever legislator ought to be able to put together is to say, look, I mean, look, no one's going to, Physicians will always be among the best paid professions in the United States. As by my lights, that is entirely appropriate. Um, the skills, the importance to society. I mean, who, who, sh you know, if not doctors. Yes. And the yes, requirements to yes, get into medical, yes. medical school I mean, you know, must still you. stay I, high. I want right? my doctor to be well paid. Uh, <laughs> you know, I don't want a heart right. surgeon, you know, but I don't want to. So, I mean, that, that yeah. Uh, it shouldn't be a. So, Shouldn't be a shift work yeah, job. Yeah, so just to be clear, we're not talking about like hacking down salaries. But you know, realistically, you're talking about sort of bending the curve, to use a phrase that's common in healthcare economics, so that over time you start to slow the sort of rise in, in, in some of the salaries, particularly among some of the specialists. If you're going to do that, there's got to be a package give and take here. And I think part of that give and take is one, get rid of all the debt that they're carrying. Because it's just it's crazy levels of debt some of these people graduate with, is, and, and and you know, and that's and number two, do something on malpractice. I actually, and again, this is not something you. you this is actually you hear more. Mm. Yes, that's something like, Republicans you know, should funny. jump on that board was with. On right? offer, there was the Democrats, the Obama, Obama particularly was very <laughs> interested in reaching out to Republicans and reaching out to the medical profession and putting that on the table. Democrats, a lot of Democrats were very unhappy about that, but he personally he was like. I think this system is it's a bad system. And actually, there's lots of reason to think it's just a bad system, even if you're a liberal. Like it's just it's our malpractice system is just it doesn't work for really for anybody. So reforming it, there's a way to reform it intelligently that also I think makes it better for physicians who I do think frequently, you know, not not just that it drives up costs, but it causes anxiety when it shouldn't, et cetera. Um, you know, interestingly, that like was never the Republicans never took them up on it. Not really. And the 
Well, you have to, in order to, in order to take somebody up on that, you have to well, want to see them win, right? And Republicans had decided they did not want to win, and and Democrats often yeah, don't necessarily yeah. want Republicans to win either. It's not a, it's not a, you know, it's not right. an affliction that only one side has. But you know, I think there is a problem with assuming that the other side will side with you because people don't have any desire to get along. We talk about that on this show all the time, and that's the whole purpose of the show. How the heck are we going to get along? And and I've learned over the year doing this that you really, the only way to do it is you have to want to do it. And there's just not much will on either side for people to want to allow the other side to get a win. Joe Biden may be able to accomplish things in this first term or in this two-year Congress that he has, um, but it will likely not come at the hands of too many people from across the aisle because so many are hesitant to give the opposing party a win. And to do it on a thing like health care, um, which requires not only you be willing to let your opponent have a win, but also to be able to understand all, I mean, you, did, you didn't even get into all the complexities of it. And so I hope people will grab the book, Obamacare and the Unfinished Crusade for Universal Coverage. Jonathan Cohn, write it down, Obamacare and the Unfinished Crusade for Universal Coverage, because there's so much more complexity to this issue. So we've got to get people to be willing on one side of the aisle or the other to work with the other side and perhaps praise them for something or credit them for something or shake their hand on some issue of importance. And then we have to get them to be able to understand all of these incredible complexities, which even during Congresses that weren't as contentious, Senates and Houses that weren't as polarized and divided as the ones now. We're talking about the ones in the 90s and the early 2000s, um, and, and arguably even the first parts of Obama's first term weren't as polarized as the ones we're dealing with now. We've got to get them to be willing to understand the complexities and be willing to give the other side a win. So Jonathan Cohn, how the heck are oh we going to get along? I don't know that I have an answer on <laughs> that one. Um, you know, it's hard. Um, I would like to live in a world where you could have that kind of rational conversation, and I hope we'll get there. I mean, I think at the end of the day, it requires willing individuals on both sides, and there haven't lately been enough on the Republican side. I, I, I want to be optimistic, though, so I'm going to give you an optimistic note on that, which is, and this is very much in the book. I've, I'll, I'll, I talk about this a lot. Um, one of the reasons Democrats went down the path they did on the Affordable Care Act was, I think I mentioned, they believed this was a model that could get some bipartisan buy-in. That was very much in their minds. They hoped for that. One of the reasons they hoped for that was there was a state-level reform. One state had passed a plan that looked like this, and it had bipartisan support. It was actually a Republican governor and a Democratic state legislature that did it. Now, that Republican governor, as you may know, was a guy named Mitt Romney. Um, and I have spent a lot of time, I'm a bit of a Romney obsessive. And partly because I live in Michigan now, and I used to live in Massachusetts. And of course, he was governor of Massachusetts. He grew up in Michigan. His father was the governor of Michigan. And I, you know, I don't like to get into people's psychology at all, but there is like a strand of thinking that runs through the Romney family about public service as a calling. Um, and I believe that about Romney. And I have plenty of things of Romney I don't agree with. But like, I think he genuinely sort of thinks that like public service is a calling, that you have a responsibility to act in the public interest. Um, he's also a problem solver. 
Um, and that's why he did that. You know, he's not, he was never a crusader for universal coverage, but for Massachusetts in 2006, it made sense for their budget to do a healthcare reform. And, and he thought that made sense and he was into it. And he's like, I'm a governor, I should solve problems, you know? And that's what he'd done in business. He was a problem solver, not that ideological. Now, he ended up running for president and becoming, you know, he was the 2012 nominee and he was, you know, like a Republican nominee. He was out there hammering away at Obama and the welfare state and socialism and all that. But, you know, I see Romney today and I see a little bit of the Romney that I remember from Massachusetts, who was a problem solver. Now, he's come forward, for example, not on health care, but with a proposal for a child allowance, uh, which is a, an idea that's gotten a lot of attention on the left, but a little bit on the right, too, as a kind of something new, you know, whatever. And, you know, there are the Romneys of the world and there are the Murkowski, Lisa Murkowski's of the world, who was one, you know, people remember John McCain voting thumbs down on repeal. They always forget that it wouldn't have mattered if Lisa Murkowski hadn't also voted no. And the reason she voted no, a big part was uh, the native Alaskans in, in her home state, uh, a lot of them had enrolled in Medicaid expansion. And they had been very, she was very, she's very close to them. They were, she was the reason, the reason she was able to win re-election. And they were like, don't take this away from us. So, you know, I think there is that spirit. There's a little bit within the Republican Party. And until then, I, I have, I've been saying for a while, I don't think I coined this phrase, but I can't remember who did. So someone maybe out there can tweet at me and tell me who thought of it. But, uh, you know, I think we do have two parties in this country. We have the liberal wing of the Democratic Party and the conservative wing of the Democratic Party. I mean, the reality is that I think some of these conservative Democrats 20 years ago would have been Republicans. I think, you know, the, the Democratic Party has now become the sort of party of rational people who want to govern. And then the Republican Party is off talking about Dr. Seuss, with the exception of people like Mitt Romney and, and Lisa Murkowski. And until the Lisa Murkowskis and Mitt Romneys get more influence within the Republican Party, I kind of think that's the way things are going to be. I hope we get to the point. I don't like being in a situation where such so much of the country is in its own conversation and not part of the discussion. I don't think that's good for the United States. Um, but I don't know. I, I may, maybe maybe I'll write a new book and figure out how to solve it. But I, I don't have that one figured out yet.